3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Great to have your company. It's 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan Wallace and it is Monday the 4th of April. Full disclosure, it's a pre-recorded show today, so if anything groundbreaking happened over the space of the weekend, well, I'm afraid that we're not going to be able to cover it on this show on Monday. And let's hope nothing groundbreaking did happen over a weekend, with the exception of potentially an election being called, and well, that was always on the cards anyway. But if it was out of that sphere, then probably a good thing that uh, nothing groundbreaking happens because we know when that occurs, it's not always the world's best news. Do hope you had a good weekend and I hope your year has, well, I hope it started positively. We're past the first quarter of the year. It's autumn. It feels very much like autumn in Melbourne. It's one of my favourite times in the city, already out and about and enjoying the comedy festival and yeah, seeing people start to rug up a little bit and you get that sense of a, a city now very much in full flight for the year and that's great to see. Also hope that you're enjoying live music and everything that the city has to offer. And talking about offerings, well, on the show today, we have a really, really sweet assortment of interviews. We'll be speaking with Christy Walters from the Community Power Agency, looking at, well, looking at the CPA's response to the federal budget and what more they'd like to see be done in terms of investment in community-run power initiatives. On the theme of the environment, we're also looking at the Gondwanan forests of Tasmania, a really special interview with Professor David Bowman from the University of Tasmania, talking to us about this incredible part of the world and the risk that these super special forests are facing. And then after 8am, you'll be hearing... Well, he's a friend of the show, and he's a really, really, really lovely guy too. Matthew Sussex from ANU and Griffith University with all the latest on the situation in Ukraine. Great to have him back to give us an update on 3CR Breakfast. But right now... Well, he's one of my favorite artists and it's one of the best gigs that I've ever seen. I've referred to it a few times. It was at the Corner Hotel. It was now over 10 years ago. It's Mr. Paul Dempsey with his iconic Melbourne tune and bats. It's 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan Wallace and it's just delightful to have your company this morning. Come rebuild your Small mountain of burning leaves, a swinging white door that slams shut like a guillotine. Strum a note up in the wires to chase bats down the river, seagulls around spires and shred all the twilight, scatter it citywide. Those 
Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. This is 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name and great to have your company on the show this morning. I hope you enjoyed Pat's by Paul Dempsey. That is just one of my favourite tunes. It always comes into mind when I think of seeing the flying foxes overhead in Melbourne and that massive movement. It is a very, very mm, stunning symbol uh, that uh, is a vote from Paul Dempsey there and hope you enjoyed it. This is 
is the week after the federal budget. And we know that on so many fronts that the budget was a huge disappointment for those wanting to see this government, this insipid government, take more steps on addressing climate change. And, well, the hollowness continued in terms of an absence of investment and absence of support for proper renewable energy projects. One organisation that has been at the forefront of supporting community-led renewable projects is the Community Power Agency. They're a not-for-profit organisation that has expertise in enabling and advocating different groups to really pull together fantastic community energy initiatives. I spoke with one of their directors, Christy Walters, about the federal budget and a bit about the organisation itself and what she'd like to see done to really address this important avenue to um, enable and realise the transition to a carbon-free future. This is 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan Wallace. Christy, thanks so much for your time this morning. Before we get underway, tell me a bit about the Community Power Agency and your work there. Sure. So Community Power Agency is a, a small non-profit. Um, our, our vision is for Australian communities to be active participants in a renewable energy system that's fair and accessible for all and also affordable. Um, one of the ways that, that we seek to achieve that is by working with um, communities to progress their own energy projects. So we um, support a lot of community groups around Australia to, to start their own community energy projects. Um, we also work with um, industry and government to make renewables developments ha- happen in a, in a better way. So through encouraging better benefit sharing um, processes and encouraging them to do um, you know, best practice community engagement. Um, and obviously we do advocacy to to get um, policies that will work for everybody. That's brilliant. Thank you for that overview. Chris, you're calling specifically for investment in regional areas and specifically people-powered renewal of regional areas. Mm. What does that look like in practice for you? Yeah, so one of the things that that we know works in Australia is is rooftop solar on, on people's houses, which is amazing and there's support for that. But what there isn't really support for at the moment is for communities to come together to make sort of the, the next scale of renewables happen. So there's large-scale renewables that, that we know are rolling out already in regional areas and we've got individual household-level solutions, but there's this gap in the middle for community-scale renewable energy. And so what we're hoping to see is community power hubs, um, in fact 50 across Australia, that would really be... Um, on-the-ground um, supportive uh, sort of hubs to support community groups um, to progress their ideas. So it might be how do they get solar on the, the local, um, you know, fire service station? How do they get um, a system for backup at the, the rural fire um, association so that when there's, um, a, you know, a power outage, people can still go in to charge their phones and, or even use um, hoses to, you know, I guess do what they need to do in terms of protecting um, their properties with water pumps. 
Um, so there's lots of different things that, that can be supported from these community power hubs. Can you give us a, an example of uh, a setup that might represent what you're describing as a community power hub that's already out there operating in the community? Yeah, so the um, in Victoria they've um, had a really success, successful um, pilot program. So they did um, three three hubs, community power hubs in in three regional areas of Victoria, um, and it was so um, effective from this initial two year trial. It generated fourteen point five million dollars um, from the initial government investment, um, which was in effect a, a thirteen to one leverage of the the government investment and off the back of that they've now um, funded um, seven of these community power hubs in in each of the regional areas and one in the I think maybe two in um, in the Melbourne area um, and we've seen that they're, they're already doing amazing things so for example the the Barwon Southwest community power hub have assisted the the YMCA in Geelong to install a, a 60 kilowatt rooftop solar array on their sports stadium, which saves them $14,000 a year on their power bills. You know, and that, and that money can then go towards delivering more programs to, port, to support their community. And so it makes a really big difference on the ground. Um, and there's, you know, that's just one example of, of countless things that are happening um, from these hubs in Victoria, Victoria right now. Um, so we're really wanting to see that expanded to the rest of australia that all sounds really positive Um, when we're recording this we're just a few days after the federal budget um your thoughts on how effective the budget has been in terms of supporting uh projects uh such as what you're calling for with community power hubs or for um, local investment in um, sustainable energy, your overall assessment of, of this year's budget? Well, I, I would be lying if I, if I said that I wasn't disappointed with the, um, the federal budget in terms of their commitments to supporting renewables and, and action on climate change. Um, I don't think the, the budget really even mentions the word climate change. Um, and we know that renewables is one of the best ways to respond to um, the impending, um, you know, climate, well, the climate crisis that's already here, as we can see, with increased um, natural disasters happening right across Australia. Um, one of the things that, that we think they should be doing is, as I've been saying, is to um, establish these community power hubs and, and put in funding so that there can be people on the ground to support them, but also have grants available ready to, to kind of take the next step for those community groups once this once they've figured out what they're doing and, and we haven't really seen anything from um, from the budget that will go towards supporting that kind of thing to happen. Um, there was a little bit of funding to support um, microgrids in remote and um, rural areas, um, which you know we welcome, um, but that's just you know one small part of of what is an array of solutions available that we have right now and it's really disappointing to see them um, not step up to the plate and actually fund things that we know already work but just need more support to happen. Have you seen anything more hopeful within the Labor Party's policy platform? Um, Labor Party, uh, you know, they've got some good policies out there. There's a um, uh, a solar banks policy which is essentially going to be supporting 
uh, well, we call them solar gardens, but it's, it's a way for people who, who are renters or are locked out of, of putting rooftops or on their own place for whatever reason, um, they'll be able to then participate in a, in a solar garden where solar is um, built off-site and they essentially just kind of purchase a, a plot of that um, solar garden and get the, the benefits of the electricity generated onto the, their own electricity bill. Um, and so that's, that's a really positive thing, um, but we would also encourage Labor to, to get behind a community power hubs policy as well because um, we, we've got the evidence, we know that it works. We just need it to be supported Australia-wide. And also, why is there such a strong call for that investment to take place in uh, regional areas? I know that, um, mm. um, that that was a big call that's come from the Community Power Agency. I'm just um, curious to learn more about that push and um, that advocacy for investment in heavily in regions uh, as distinct from, say, the metropolitan centres across Australia. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest reasons for us is we know that the large-scale development of renewables is already underway. That's largely going to happen in uh, regional areas. And so in order for that to go smoothly, we know that it's really important for um, those communities to be on on board. And and it's a phrase we call social licence, where they're supportive of the proposals. Um, And one way to achieve that is by actually allowing them to be part of the process. So if there were community powerhubs in regional areas, those communities would be supported to figure out how they can actually participate um, in the the large-scale rollout of renewables. Um, There's plenty of ways that um, communities can participate in um, large-scale projects, um, but there's also lots of ways that they can um, indeed start their own, um, whether it's a a solar array um, in a field or doing energy efficiency um, on buildings that are in their area. There's lots of different ways that people can um, be part of this transition to a clean energy future. Um, And we think it's really important that there are programs and and policies that are going to support, in particular, regional people to to actually participate in that. So in many ways, it's about turning the transition to renewable energy and decarbonizing the economy into something that's a bit more relatable or palpable as opposed to mm. just thinking about um, yeah those changes that you mentioned that are occurring where you see um, yeah, a significant proportion of energy generated in Australia coming from renewables but that's sort of happening um, in, a, in a way that people might be a little bit blind to or just happening in the background bringing the reality of this change and putting it uh, yeah, in the heart of people's day-to-day life. Mm, that's right, yeah. Because we, we know that generally people support renewables in Australia. There's, um, I don't know the exact figures, but there's some polling that's recent that I think it shows around um, 70% of people are supportive of renewable energy. Um, but as you say, it's one thing to be supportive of, of the concept and another thing to have it in your backyard. Well, not literally, but... I mean, in some cases, it would be literally with um, farmers that have um, wind turbines proposed to be in their their fields. And as we know that um, with more renewable energy coming online, we're going to need um, transmission lines to transport it from where it's being generated in regional areas to where a lot of the energy users are. Um, 
in the cities and along the, the east coast in particular. And so we think it's one way that um, communities can become a little bit more um, supportive and on board is if there's ways that they can um, participate uh, in, in how that happens in their areas um, and, in fact, starting their own projects. And thinking about the role of state and local governments, I mean, it also seems like a, a really good opportunity for different levels of government to be able to, to team up as well too. Yeah, I mean, the good thing about um, community power hubs is they can be supported at almost any level. Um, so the, the community power hubs that are in Victoria, they're supported by the, the state government there. Um, our proposal um, could be uh, supported by the federal government. Um, um, there could be a way to have um, large-scale um, renewable energy developers um, to to chip in funds as part of their benefit sharing scheme to support these community power hubs. So it would be one way that it could happen is um, like a government private sector partnership to enable more of this to happen um, in regional areas. So there's lots of different ways that this kind of policy can, can be rolled out. Um, It's more just about the, political will to support regional communities as we see it. Sure. And if people want to find out more about the work of the Community Power Agency and also get behind all of that great advocacy that you're doing, what would you recommend? Yeah, so there's um, two things you can do. We've got um, a campaign website called repowerourcommunities.org.au. So you can head along to there and we've got a petition going. Love people to, to sign up to that. Um, or else you can see all of the other work that we're doing at um, communitypoweragency.org.au and the ways that we support communities and and work with with councils and government and and industry. That's absolutely wonderful. Christy, thanks so much for your time this morning. I'll be sure to put a link to the campaign on our website and best of luck. Excellent. Thanks so much, Erin. Christy Walters there from the Community Power Agency. She was talking about well, their work, their response to the federal budget, what more they'd like to see be done in terms of supporting community-led power initiatives. And as said, we'll have a link to their work on our website, 3cr.org.au. Right now, it's time to hear a really, really beautiful interpretation of a Neil and Tim Finn classic. It's Boy and Bear with Fall at your feet. Oh, oh, oh. 
3CR Breakfast, and that was Boy and Bear with their incredible rendition of Fall at Your Feet. I hope you're having a good morning. One of my favorite parts of the world is Gondwana Land, and for so long, when I thought about Gondwana Land in Australia, I'd associated it with the well, the mid-north coast of New South Wales going to that southern pocket in the Gold Coast hinterland. So north of Coffs Harbour up to, yeah, up to about the Lamington National Park. And love, love the forest of Gondwana land and the Antarctic beach trees that you find there. And that scent of being able to step right back in time. And last year, I was lucky enough to return to the New England National Park in New South Wales. And I was there with my girlfriend and it was an incredibly misty, magical day and yeah, so special to be in that sort of Jurassic landscape. Often escaping the imagination of Gondwana is 
the forests of southwest Tasmania. These are forests that David Bowman, a professor of pyrogeography and fire science at the University of Tasmania, is incredibly passionate about. He's also concerned. He's concerned that as the climate warms, that these forests are increasingly at risk. In this interview, we talk about the magic of the forests of Tasmania's Gondwana land, the risks that they're facing, and what we'd like to see be done to support their survival. This is 3CR, and here's David Bowman. David, it's mostly Melburnians who are tuning into this show, and I can tell you from past conversations that a lot of people won't be familiar with Gondwanan ecosystems. So before we start looking at how we can protect these incredible Tasmanian forests, could you paint us a picture of Tasmania's Gondwana land? Yeah, so Tasmania, um, I always like to think of, is a little bit like the umbilical cord between Antarctica and Australia. And what happened was that uh, the Gondwanic supercontinent, which, you know, the southern continents uh, can be fitted together, not necessarily perfectly by their uh, current coastal, uh, uh, coastal outlines, but more fundamentally by their rocks. So if anybody's ever been to Tasmania, the signature tune of Tasmania are those beautiful uh, columns you see on Canini, the Mount Wellington, these beautiful columns. If you go into the central plateau, uh, you'd pretty well drive anywhere around Tasmania. You'll see these beautiful dark uh, cliffs on the escarpments. And what's really arresting and strange is that uh, I've never been to Antarctica, but the photos I've seen of Antarctica is the exact same cliffs in the dry valleys of Antarctica. And in fact, they are the exact same rock. Wow. Um, So Tasmania and Antarctica have a lot in common. And the vegetation that grows um, in uh, 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 Tasmania also has links uh, to, particularly to the uh, southern end of South America, there are some links to the southern tip of South Africa, but not so strong. Um, And then there's obviously these links between the other remnants of Gondwana that are nearby New Zealand and New Caledonia being really prime examples. And if you go into the forests, the Gondwanic forests of New Caledonia, New Zealand, as I have, the weird thing is not only does it look the same, it smells the same. It, it really is an ecosystem. And so it's not just the plants and some of the invertebrates, it's also the bacteria, the fungi. These are like remnant, uh, really remnant ecological systems. And it's, it's a really strange sort of discordant feeling to, to think uh, you know, I'm in New Caledonia, but this is sort of like in the high mountains of New Caledonia, but this is sort of like Tasmania. Um, and, and biogeographers have known this for a very long time and they've thought about it. And then, of course, the theory of continental drift that has been substantiated by, you know, a lot of uh, tectonic research and so on has really become mainstream um, in, in the second half of, uh, of last century. 
So when we go into the forests, the Gondwanic forests of Tasmania, we can have a sense that we are touching, uh, going back into very deep time. Uh, these things are remarkable. The pencil pines are truly living fossils in the sense that some of their nearest relatives are the giant redwoods. In um, So these are going way, way, way back, like, you know, 400 million years back into time. Now, obviously, the trees aren't 400 million years old. They are long-lived. They live for about 1,000, maybe 10,000 years as they're clonal, but it's their evolutionary roots that go back into deep time. So southwest Tasmania is... Um, you know, the core area where there's a lot of this Gondwanic vegetation, you know, we know where the hotspots are. Um, they're small areas, they're fragile. And unfortunately, because of Instagram, you can promote some of these areas. They can be trampled to an inch of their life. You know, they're, they're quite uh, vulnerable for humans. You know, humans go want to go bushwalking, even if humans are good and pick up their litter and don't use campfires, they still... Um, they do a lot of excretion. Uh, so actually, uh, you know, as a friend of mine said, you get rangers together talking about areas where bushwalkers go and very quickly the conversation turns to shit mm -hmm. um, because, because that's actually a really big management issue. Yeah, So, you know, then now they have to have these sort of flying saucer type things. You know, they fly in with helicopters, which are sort of portaloos type things. Um, they look like flying saucers and then people can crap into them oh. um, and, and then, uh, and then they can take away the, the, uh, the, the human waste. So, you know, these are, uh, uh, you know, precious, beautiful ecosystems. Um, humans are attracted to them. they they have tell us a deep story. They're really unique. They don't occur on the mainland of Australia. They went extinct there. They, they were there. Um, but they went extinct. So there's a lot of things which we call endemic uh, plants and endemic invertebrates um, in these e ecosystems. So the, the downside uh, for these things is that they have an incredible vulnerability to fire. Yeah, and, and let's let's talk about that. But before we do, and I think you painted such a great picture there of the Gondwanan forest and the interconnectivity of them. That's That's so wonderful. Thank you, David. On on those forests and thinking about the Tasmanian Gondwanan landscape before thinking about that vulnerability to fire, I'm wondering what sort of climate do these forests need to survive? Well, that's right. You, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, unfortunately, these climates are going away. The climates they need to survive are very wet, very, uh, yeah, just an extraordinarily damp, foggy, um, not cold, they're, they're cold for Australians, but certainly globally, they're not like, you know, freezing cold where you have, you know, ice or winter. It's not like the boreal forests or the, the forests of Scandinavia or something like that. We don't have a lot of snow lie, um, but they're basically a damp, damp, wet, soggy, what should I say they were damp, damp, wet, soggy, when I came to Tasmania a very long time ago, I remember going bushwalking and bushwalking, basically we didn't even have like the jackets they have these days. They have this sort of like, they had oil skins, you know, these 
basically they were like heavy duty cotton covered in oil ah. and, um, and they didn't work after about a day cool. um, and what happened is you would end up with rain pouring out your arms and you would just be absolutely saturated. Oh, that sounds a bit miserable. Yeah, yeah, no, you had to really be into this stuff because you didn't, uh, they didn't have polypro or anything like that either. So you had wool clothes, you know, you got terrible chafing and, and you know, was, and you were just, you were just basically, and the tents were awful, you know, they didn't have sewn in ground sheets. You were basically wet. You, you went into these environments to be, you know, occasionally you'd get a day of blue sky and it would be just like off the charts. But most of the time you were just extremely wet and damp. And, and that's what that environment was. That's David Bowman and you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name and it's lovely to have your company on the show. All right, time for a tune. And this is a jazz classic. It's Mr. Duke Ellington with in a mellow tone. We'll be back after this with the second part of our interview with David Bowman and we'll dive more into the threats facing the incredible forests of southwest Tasmania, Tasmania's Gondwana land. It's 3CR Breakfast. We're chatting with David Bowman. Right now, it's time for Duke Ellington.
Ah, woohoo! Fantastic! Duke Ellington with In a Mellow Tone. Good morning. I'm Evan Wallace, and on the show this morning, we are talking with David Bowman from the University of Tasmania about the incredible forests of southwest Tasmania, Tasmania's Gondwana land, and the threats that they are facing. We return to the interview now and looking specifically at the relationship between a warmer climate and the threats that are ahead for the southwest forests of Tasmania. This summer has just seen the most crazy dry uh, conditions on in western Tasmania, record drought. Uh, believe it, you know, we've got these floods on the east coast, Flo- you know, just incredibly dry. Um, the Franklin River, which is, a you know, a famous uh, uh, trip down, you know, a surging, flooding uh, whitewater river, uh, basically, you know, the people have been running Franklin River rafting trips have had to cancel them. There's no water in the riverbed. You know, the river, you know, they've been dragging rafts down the river, you know, tearing the, the floors out of rafts in some situations. It's been extremely dry. Now, that's um, dryness and low river levels go with bushfire risk. We were very, very lucky this summer that a fire from lightning which is another thing I will talk about. Um, the, a lightning strike started a fire near an area that is the last remaining unlogged stand of hewn pines because hewn pines are this incredible timber, uh, you know, the most beautiful timber. Unfortunately, hewn pines take uh, over a thousand years to really grow, you know, a millable log. And uh, one of the first things the um, the British realised in Tasmania is that they that these trees were just like beautiful timber, you know, for almost indestructible in terms of you know for marine purposes. Beautiful soft timber, you know, a, a soft wood, beautiful for for furnishings and you know. And so what they did is they had the convicts go up the rivers, standing in their, you know, torturing them basically, standing in their up to their waist, soaring down these trees, and then the floods would come and wash the logs down. And then that became commercialised. And fortunately, uh, before helicopters could be involved, people realised we had to pull back because if, if they'd got into, you know, because the rate-limiting step was getting up the rivers. The rivers were, were incredibly dangerous because they'd flood all the time. So there's this last remaining um, stand of hewn pines, which never got logged would have been logged if they'd had helicopters, um, but thankfully they didn't. And it's named after the famous wilderness photographer, Alagus Tricanus. Anyway, a fire occurred up near there and it was like the vulnerability of the Gondwanic vegetation was put up in lights again, just as it was with the lightning storm that occurred in 2000 and um, 16 that threatened the walls of Jerusalem National Park and the lightning storm that happened in 2019 that threatened areas like Lake Rona, a very famous place, um, mm. and also Mount Anne. So we've got, um, which is, you know, an iconic, one of these iconic, you know, wilderness um, calendar sort of magical places, unfortunately, that has very, very high visitor impacts and goes back to those issues of needing tracks and toilets and all the rest of it. 
not not that people shouldn't enjoy these places. They've just got to understand that they're incredibly fragile, very very fragile because they're so, not... so fragile. Um, well, humans and... weren't around in Gondwana, you know, like um, so they just don't have really, um, you know, they're how the Aborigines treated these places is something that you know I would really love to know, but we certainly do know that Aboriginal fire management um, was quite conservative and I believe was really important in preserving these places and protecting these places. So you've got this, um, you know, perfect storm now that we've got 200 years of no Indigenous fire management. Uh, we've got a terrifyingly uh, rapid drying trend, um, you know, just a crazy drying trend, like crazy, you know, we, we're seeing it in my lifetime sort of drying trend, you know, that the stories I can tell about going into the wilderness when I was 17, which is, you know, a long time ago, um, that environment, I know, because I'm still going into these environments, um, they, uh, they, they don't exist anymore. Um, that the, the climate has changed. So you've got, you know, this, this very fragile vegetation being pressured by climate change, being threatened by, by the fire and the fuel buildup associated with the absence of cultural burning. And then the absolute killer punch is that climate is now delivering a lot of lightning storms. So no matter how, um, uh, you know, we obey no campfires, we have, you know, fuel, only, fuel stove only um, practice for people who go into the, to the World Heritage Area. So you don't have a campfire, um, even though, you know, it's comparatively chilly and there is a lot of timber around. The reason we don't do that is that people are not very sensible with campfires. But also the other thing that um, I haven't mentioned, which is kind of weird, um, for, for mainland Australians to think about is that the entire substrate of Western Tasmania, um, the soil is combustible. David Bowman there covering off the science behind why these magnificent forests in southwest Tasmania are so at risk and also just the general risk to facing forests within Tasmania's stunning World Heritage Area. It's 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan Wallace. Time for another tune. It's Tell Me by Mia Dyson. We'll be back with the final part of our interview with David Bowman after this cracker song from her album, The Moment. Fire on a mountainside Gets brighter all the time And it's got you hooked All through the night So much to do You think of little might to do it And the more you hold on To the time you lose it Tell me the things you never speak of
our breakfast i'm evan that was mia dyson with tell me i hope you're having a super morning time to return now to our interview with david bowman where we're looking at the threats facing the forests of southwest tasmania's gondwana land so far we've been talking about the science behind these risks and threats and a bit about the nature of these forests and just how special and unique that they are we Look to the future with David in the final part of this interview with what he'd like to see be done to support this incredible ecosystem and yes, also to bolster fire management in Tasmania across the entirety of the state. It's 3CR Breakfast. Here's David Bowman. Just wondering for all the listeners out there, whether you can give us a bit more of a sense of the ecological damage that fires have had recently in Tasmania. So you mentioned the 2016 fires uh, when there was over 42,000 hectares that burned, 2019 with over 210,000 hectares with 95,000 in the World Heritage Area. And the scale is huge and those those numbers are massive. But what does this damage look like from a, an ecological perspective? What, what, what does this mean when it, when it does happen? Yeah, so be, we've got to be careful about the numbers and the scale. I think um, really the this, the big story is the frequency of these sure. that because we also had a very big fire in, in terms of I, I wrote a paper about in 2013 there was a big fire, lightning caused fire in um, in the Davy River in, in southwest Tasmania. So these fires, the vegetation with the exception of the Gondwanic vegetation can recover. Um, it's fire adapted. Uh, so the things that I'm concerned about is the shrinking um, frequency of fires. That's where you can start really affecting vegetation recovery because the things that are regrowing don't have time to mature. So you can lose seed banks, so on. And, and you start changing the character of the vegetation because it's it can switch 
still the same species, but they're switching from being forests to maybe a lot of dead trees and then maybe more open, more regrowth. So it sort of can change the character. But the thing I'm most worried about as a, is the fact that the um, this relentless trend of lightning fires means that, you know, it's very difficult to fight because you can't, you can't blame can't blame the arsonists. You can't blame the stupid bushwalkers. You can't, you, you, know, you know, you've got to blame climate change, that climate is firing in these ignitions. And we're seeing in the data for lightning um, caused fires, it's just an amazing time series. You know, globally, it's a really fascinating time series because you can factor out human ignitions are, are largely irrelevant in this environment, it, it's a very, you know, very carefully managed to control human ignitions. You can't have, um, you can only have fuel stoves and people have signed on to that. So what, what I'm really worried about is that relentless trend combined with the combustion of the organic soils, because that's, you know, a nightmare scenario. And I've sort of seen places where this nightmare scenario is sort of becoming real is that there will be places in southwest Tasmania which will switch from being dull, green, um, damp, um, black, because the soil's black, and sort of all of the hues dark to bright white because the underlying rock is white and it's just, you're going to burn off the soil and you're going to have gravels and rocks. And um, it's going to completely change the the character of the place, the light quality, because there'll be all of this reflections coming off the ground. The ground will be it'll go literally from a from a dark substrate to a to a light substrate. Um, it's going to switch. the The rivers will change the way they behave because there'll be a lot more flash flooding because it's they're just not going to be able to hold the water. You know, so the whole ecology in the landscape, the tempo of the landscape, um, the look, the feel of the landscape, the smell of the landscape is going to change. And that leads us to, you know, humans are very adaptable and people who've never been to this environment will still be in awe of this environment because it's an awesome, beautiful environment. And, and climate change has occurred there because of the ice age. So a lot of, if you know how to look at country, you can see the legacy of the ice age everywhere. Um, and, you know, wrapping your mind around the ice age is, is quite a thing, you know, but then wrapping your mind around the end of the ice ages into this Anthropocene is also quite a thing. But I think that that transition from certainly, you know, my generation and maybe, you know, even the millennials that transition is going to be, you know, solastalgia, you know, the grief, environmental grief on steroids. That's, mm. you know, there's going to be a lot of people care deeply about these places. And every time there's a fire, even if it's not really doing a lot of harm, it may be actually creating fire breaks. It's going to stress people because they, they know that what they love is vulnerable. They know that. So there's an enormous amount of stress built up around this. Uh, and, you know, there was a Senate inquiry into the 2016 fires because of 
the grains and grain pressure. So we do, I think, um, and the other side of it, which is important, is that when you burn these soils, the smoke, it's a smoldering combustion. The smoke is absolutely horrendous. And there have been times um, when Hobart, particularly in 2019, Hobart was just in a smoke cloud. It was just horrific. Um, and it affects people's health. And it affects, again, the light. You're living in this, this, this smog, this haze, this apocalyptic sort of yellow. It smells. It's just like does really strange things to your mind. You just want, you just want the sky to clear. You want, you want normality back. But it's not there. And it goes on and on and on. So these things are all compounding. Um, and they affect people. And I think that the problem is that if we don't have an honest conversation about what's happening and we don't make real attempts to stabilise climate and we don't make real attempts to adapt to the, the, this relentless change in, in fire activity, then what we're really doing is we're just front-loading an enormous amount of ecological stress and grief into the population because people are just like, they know there's something weird you're not meant to be, you know, people in cities, Melbourne's been through this, you know, the, you're not meant to be breathing this weird stuff, you're not meant to be smelling this, you know, the, the sun isn't meant to look like that. And, you, and it starts disorientating people in the same way that, you know, in, a, in maybe in a short bursts, in the same way that pandemic has disorientated people. And what, you know, that's, that's part of the transition we're in, we've got to deal with it. But if you're denying it and papering it over and saying it's not real, then you really are doing, that's gaslighting, that's doing harm to people because they know there's something wrong, you know, and they're, they're trying to adapt, they're trying to make sense to it. So I think it's really important that, you know, we have some honest conversations about the changes which are underway, that we talk about them, that we talk about some of the really tough choices we want to make to say, conserve the Gondwanic vegetation. Specifically, there's some really quite confronting things that we've got to think about. Um, Just wanting to hear what you would like to see done in terms of uh, fire management and protection strategies to support those Gondwanan forests. I mean, we know that the impact of climate change um, is is locked in to a certain degree. Um, well, not certain to a certain degree. It is, it is locked in. This the only um, question is how much worse is it going to be? And thinking about uh, strategies to support the Gondwanan forest, what would you like to see be done? Well, I think it's exactly like the Barrier Reef. I mean, the number one thing is we've got to get on with the program and decarbonise. We've got to figure out a way that we can get along with each other globally. I mean, having a war does not help with major stakeholders. We've got a, a really, really big geopolitical problem and that these little places like Tasmania are just warning lights telling us that the Earth system's under terrible stress. So we've got, we've got a lot of work to do in decarbonisation and, and, and stabilising the earth system. And it's gonna be in everybody's interests to do that. Whether humans will be able to do it in time is obviously, this is what, you know, this is what this story is all about. But more locally, we've got to think, um, you know, or maybe nationally, we've got to start putting the World Heritage Area of Tasmania up there as being like the Great Barrier Reef. It needs attention, it needs, uh, discussion, research, it needs to be understood it's a warning um, of major environmental changes. You know, it's no coincidence 
what's happening in Tasmania is happening in the same time that weird stuff's happening on the reef, weird stuff's happening in northern New South Wales, weird stuff's happening everywhere. So we then got to start using our investment into the World Heritage Properties to be really wise about how we use them. We've got to start thinking about careful management. Um, and we've got to understand going to these places is a privilege and people who've got means uh, who can afford to probably should be paying um, and there probably should be some sort of permitting system built in. And those resources should be going back to, to maintain the profit, the values these places, very, very special thing to go to these places. Um, how we do that equitably, I don't know, but we, we do need to be thinking about this and we do need to be thinking about much more investment in fire adaptation, fire management, how we're gonna use fire in the landscape, how we're gonna manage lightning strikes. So we have much better planning. So where there will be some fires and we go, look, it's not worth the money fighting this fire. We know that we've done enough. It's not threatening anything of significance. We're just going to have to accept it's going to burn and, and stand back and watch the show and hope the weather gods come in and put it out. But there will be some fires that are so terrifyingly threatening to the World Heritage properties that we've got to go in there with specially trained people who are properly resourced um, with aircraft because it's a wilderness. And, and get the fire out. But we've got to be very careful that we don't create a situation that's unsustainable and try to do that for every fire. It, and that requires planning, care, attention, investment. So we've got um, you know, a whole spectrum of things to do. And you know, there is a draft fire management plan for the World Heritage Area. Uh, you know, step one, no longer make it a draft, make it a plan. Step two, make certain it's properly funded. Sure. I think that's a really, really, they're really important recommendations. And David, just finally, for all the listeners out there, what would you like to leave them with us there, setting off for their day, heading off to work, heading off to, to university or doing whatever they need to do for the day? What's the really key message that you'd like to leave listeners with today? Well, I, I always look at the Gondwanic vegetation as a story of the endurance of life. Life endures. Life is a rich, complex tale of, of change. But, you know, the world hasn't been obliterated. The world is changed. We are undergoing a change. This is a transformation. It's particularly hard for the younger generation because they're really bearing the brunt of this enormous sort of transition. We're in a transition. But it's absolutely critical not to lose hope because through this transition, there is the possibility that we're actually going to turn out into a more sustainable future. But we've, we've clearly got to go through this transition. We've got to try to preserve things. We've got to become um, custodians. We've got a husband. So imagine the future where we not only look at the remnant Gondwanic vegetation, but we know that that remnant Gondwanic vegetation was saved because of human, human care. That will be an amazing legacy for the future, that it's not just it's a miracle of evolution by geography, but it's also a testament that humans can love nature and can care for nature, and there can be a codependency in nature between humans and the Earth system. That's, that's basically, we're going to become Gaians, if we'd like it or not. And that's step one to be a guy in is to take on 
the husbandry of the earth system. David, I really appreciate your thoughts, analysis, and, and time this morning. It's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. And, and thank you so much for really capturing the intricacies of the Gondwanan landscape, the threats that they're facing, and also to um, some philosophies and strategies and recommendations to support their future. Thank you so much. Uh, pleasure. Thank you very much. David Bowman there speaking with me about the forests of Tasmania's Gondwana land. It's Monday morning. I hope it's going well for you. This is Tallyface with their song Hikaru from their Jundo EP. It's from the incredibly wonderful collaborative team of John Mellor and Ums. It's Monday. Coming up next is our interview with special friend of the show, Matt Sussex, on the latest in Ukraine.
Smooth, Super Soulful, Mikaru by Deli Bass off their Jundu EP album. Evan Wallace is my name. Great to have your company. Another person whose company it was great to have was Matthew Sussex. He's an associate professor at ANU. You may have heard him on the show a few weeks back. He's an incredible analyst when it comes to Russian international politics. And here's the latest with Matthew on the invasion of Ukraine. Matt, when this goes to air, it will be day 40 of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. From my vantage point in Melbourne, it's really noticeable how this tragedy is is falling off the front pages. So a little bit of a a personal question to start. I was at the the comedy festival on Thursday and, and there were lots and lots of jokes about people in the community losing that level of care or interest and that that might have been there say a number of weeks ago when we last chatted so i wanted to ask you as, as someone who's following the invasion so closely how does it feel to be analyzing it from the distance that australia is at well look i guess uh, one of the big benefits of globalization is that you can get pretty instant access to people all around the world um, and this is one of the first wars that's been, I guess, not just live streamed, but available via social media worldwide. Um, so I think, you know, being able to keep abreast of what's happening is is something that's really useful. Um, but then again, uh, it, it's obviously the case that uh, when you are far removed from uh, a conflict and you're not seeing it day by day, then, yeah, your attention generally does start to waver a little bit. And I think that's why, you know, you have Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, giving uh, uh, an address to the Australian parliament yesterday. It's very important for him to maintain a level of uh, engagement by publics in the West in particular. The politicians will will still be interested, uh, but public engagement is extremely important. And that's why he, you know, he gets on and calls for things like demonstrations, um, calls for, you know, people to show their support for, for Ukraine in, in any way possible. Um, and it, in doing so, that, that helps, you know, very much keep, keep the conflict front, front and centre in terms of the minds of people, you know, might not just be in Europe, uh, but people uh, people in Asia as well. So for me, someone who watches this this all the time, um, you know, you get less of a sense of, of the conflict diminishing in people's minds because you're constantly doing it. But then you have to remind yourself that, you know, people do have lives uh, and they have other things that they need to uh, to think about. Um, but in this case, I, I think probably it's something that, that is going to go on for some time. So therefore, uh, you know, uh, incumbent on people who are, you know, have some degree of knowledge about it to um, to continue speaking about it. That's a really insightful reflection, Matt. You mentioned the address to the Australian Parliament yesterday by Zelensky. What were your impressions of the address, and also to how it compared to other addresses that he's given to various parliaments across the globe? Well, it's interesting because uh, he tends to. Um, Zelensky and his team, obviously, they tend to do their research fairly closely on different countries, bringing up sort of national um, myths or, or, or important parts of national histories uh, on for each country that, that Zelensky talks to. There was a bit less of that in terms of Australia. But again, I think the messaging that uh, Zelensky does and, and that his team puts together is is very sophisticated because effectively what Zelensky is saying is, look, we're just like you. 
this could be you uh, and terrible things are happening to us. So not just thank you for your assistance, but you know, please remember we're here uh, and uh, anything else you can do um, is greatly appreciated. And of course, you know, the um, prior to, to his address, the Australian government announced a 35% tariff uh, on all imports from Belarus and Russia. Uh, the Belarus part is a new development that's important for Ukraine as well because they've identified Belarus as effectively an enemy combatant given that the Russian forces are staging from there. Um, and so therefore I think, you know, it, it was a, a quite powerful address and, uh, you know, one that also had a degree of, um, you know, uh, cap in hand. Uh, he asked specifically for Australian bush fight, uh, Bushmaster uh, armoured fighting vehicles. Um, and just recently this morning, I think that uh, the story has come out to say that we will be supplying some of them. Yeah, that's definitely the, the latest on, on that front. Matt, we know that more than 4 million refugees have fled Ukraine. Can you tell me a bit about what you understand the situation on the ground looks like for Ukrainians from the conversations that you've been having and, and the reading that, that you've done? Well, it depends where you are in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine's a big country. We tend to forget that, and uh, it's got forty-four million people, but they're they're you know spread throughout the country, not just in main cities. Things are really really tough in the east uh, and in the uh, right at the south uh, or southeast, uh, and, and tough in the north as well around Kiev and Kharkov. Uh, and uh, basically the, the line of contact that between Russian forces and Ukrainian forces tend to be around cities and villages. And because you know, the Russians are using unguided artillery on a lot of those cities, um, it, it means the humanitarian, the, the humanitarian tragedy, the, the human suffering is, is astronomical in those places. There are other parts of Ukraine that are relatively untouched. The, the port city of Odessa, for instance, has been pretty much unscathed. Um, other uh, cities in the West, uh, life kind of goes on as normal, with the exception of the large, you know, influx of people fleeing the conflict from the East. And, uh, you know, from there they go to places like Poland, uh, Moldova, Romania, and so forth. So this is a sort of uh, large-scale exodus of a lot of the Ukrainian population into the rest of Europe. Um, something that, of course, Putin has achieved before when it came to Syria. Indiscriminate bombing in Syria led to the, basically the emptying of that country, some of it into Beirut, but a lot of it, of course, into, into Western Europe as well. And uh, so, so that human tide, I think, doesn't show too, too, many, too many signs of, of letting up for, for the foreseeable future. And on that, you talked about indiscriminate bombing, and and you're not hopeful that that's uh, that's something that's uh, going to going to subside. So, so I suppose on the flip side of that, how likely is it that you think that that indiscriminate bombing and obliteration of towns and, and cities is something that will actually scale up? Is it, and I suppose, likely and feasible? The two questions that I have there. Well, it's perfectly feasible. Um, the uh, the Russian armed forces are very very good at using artillery. It's one of the things that they did in Chechnya um, and uh, basically destroyed the the capital Grozny as well as other cities and towns in in that country. Um, and uh, they they've used it in Syria as well. So it's certainly feasible for the Russian government to you know order airstrikes 
uh, order artillery, order uh, multiple lo- uh, launch rocket uh, forces to, to hit, continue to hit Ukrainian cities. And in many respects, I think what's been done to places like Mariupol, uh, designed to serve as a warning to places like Kiev uh, and even Lviv in the West, uh, to say, well, you know, we can destroy your city completely and then, you know, maybe we'll come in and take it, maybe we won't. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly feasible. As to whether it's likely, it looks as though what Russia has done in the last couple of days is, is to sort of pivot a bit towards expectation management uh, and to say, well, we're going to focus mainly on, you know, gains in Donbass uh, in the east of Ukraine and withdraw some of their forces. It's true that they have drawn down a little bit around Kiev, but it's really only 10 to 20% of, of what they had there. Um, and, and most of the estimates I've seen are that that's not a withdrawal, that's a repositioning. Uh, and uh, certainly people on the ground in Kiev are reporting that artillery um, and uh, you know cruise missile strikes are, are just exactly the same as before, if not more intense. Um, and if it is in fact the case that Putin wants you know, as much of Ukraine as possible that he can then take to the negotiating table uh, and say back home and abroad that he's achieved a great victory, then you would, uh, I think, you know, anticipate that not just feasible but probably likely that this will continue. That's uh, an, an awful reality. Do you foresee any significant change in response from the US and Western-aligned nations? Uh, not really. Uh, the United States has come out and said that it won't provide security guarantee to Ukraine, which is something that you know Zelensky had been pushing for very much, saying, "Well, you know, we have to have uh, some degree of confidence, some degree of reassurance once this conflict ends that it won't just restart again in six months, twelve months, a year." So two years uh, or more. So we need security guarantees from the West now from the perspective of NATO members that's sort of dangerously close to becoming a member of NATO anyway so Zelensky can say okay we'll put uh, not formally seeking membership in NATO on the table neutrality but if we want security guarantees from the West then de facto that's pretty much the same thing so I think there is this wariness uh, in the West uh, about getting committed or committing uh, nations within uh, NATO and the EU uh, to defend Ukraine should Russia try again. Um, and that's, I mean, in my view, it's it's potentially a little bit unfortunate because it does say to Putin, well, you know, you can have round two if round one isn't successful. And sure, the West will send money uh, and the West will send a degree of, uh, of, of uh, military aid uh, and also sanctions against Russia, but don't expect it to do any fighting. It kind of reinforces this idea that the the West is prepared to fight to the last Ukrainian, which is probably not very good for the kinds of values it, it likes to espouse. It's a, a hypothetical question, and, and forgive me for if it comes across as a bit tongue-in-cheek, but Matt, if you were in the Oval Office and you had the ear of President Biden, what would you be advising at this point of time? Um, well, I, funnily enough, I, I used to be someone who, who uh, agreed very much with the, the view that NATO expansion was making Russia feel insecure uh, and that, that had potentially created 
security problems uh, for the West and, and for Ukraine and for Russia. But increasingly, I think that, that with Putin in power, I think he does want to kind of recreate that geopolitical footprint um, of the USSR, you know, not its ideology, but but the, certainly the footprint of a Russian empire. Um, and if, if that's what he wants, then he is unlikely to stop. Uh, he's not deterred by sanctions, so he's not deterred by the types of things that would deter us in the West. And I think really he only understands the language of, of military power and, you know, you could play all sorts of different games, counterfactuals, and say, well... Would NATO have been invaded? Sorry, would Ukraine have been invaded if it had been a NATO member? Uh, and you'd never know the answer to that, but you'd think it would be less likely. So, if I was advising Biden, I'd say that you know, one thing we need to think about when dealing with Russia is that uh, the Kremlin always knows that the West will want to de-escalate at every turn. And that means that brinkmanship and gambling and being prepared to risk more and showing you're prepared to risk more is always going to give Putin the upper hand. And it means the West is always going to be reactive. And I think probably it's time to change that calculus. I know people are very, very worried and legitimately so about the prospect that this could escalate to, you know, even using weapons of mass destruction. Um, but there are a lot of steps on the escalation ladder before you get to Armageddon. It's not necessarily the case that, uh, you know, protected humanitarian corridor from NATO, uh, which, you know, will shoot down the odd Russian jet, will automatically lead to, to a nuclear exchange. There are a lot of steps that, that can be uh, be taken, a lot of de-escalation that can be done after that. But I think it's really important to show Putin that, you know, you can't just act with impunity uh, and cause this horrendous suffering amongst people who really you know, just wanted to get on and live their lives. That's really interesting analysis, Matt, and one which I think listeners will be very valuable. Um, yeah, well, they'll really value hearing that. So you talked about the different steps that exist between current approach and uh, and a full-on Armageddon or, or warfare between the West and, and Russia. What what do those steps in a little bit more detail look like between, uh, yeah, between those current polls that are there so there was to be uh, a further escalation by the u.s potentially it's i don't know the nature of military support that's being provided to ukraine the nature of uh, military technology hardware that's being supplied or you talked about um uh, also a very limited um a corridor that's being enforced by nato a humanitarian corridor that is just talk to me in, in a bit more detail as to what those sort of interim steps could actually look like yeah, well, I mean, things like supplying military aid, lethal aid, is, is not an escalation at all. Um, I mean, it's something that in the Cold War both sides did with, with absolute you know, vigour, uh, and no one treated this as being particularly escalatory. Um, I think, you know, protecting civilians uh, is, is not escalatory at all, but, but what would be, um, obviously, is, uh, you know, a response with a, a kind of no-fly zone, where NATO says, okay, we're going to patrol the skies above Ukraine and, you know, we're going to swat down uh, Russian fighters and, you know, the, the next step from that is to say, well, we're not going to just swat down Russian fighters, we're going to attack their air defence networks so that they can't shoot us. Um, and, and that sort of does mean, does lead to, you know, de facto hostilities between NATO 
uh, and uh, and Russia. Now, obviously, the downside of that is that it plays very much into Putin's narrative that, you know, I was right all along, that NATO and the West want to use Ukraine as basically the, the litmus test for, you know, Russian strength and Russian power, and we will continue to stand up to the West and so forth. Um, but if it is the case that, you know, the Russian Air Force gets significantly degraded, um, then it may well cause Putin to think twice. He's already running out of um, fresh troops uh, in Ukraine. Um, he suffered way more casualties than he anticipated he was going to, to suffer. Uh, and it means that I think the Russian military is, is... It's been revealed the Russian military would not be an effective um, uh, challenger. To, to NATO troops, much to the surprise of lots of defence planners. So then, you know, there are other things that potentially would be escalatory. That's NATO ground troops, you know, in Ukraine. No one's countenancing that, and I don't think they, they ever will. Um, and then NATO ground troops, you know, on the front line, fighting alongside Ukrainians against uh, against the Russian armed forces. That's basically a war. Um, and uh, uh, from there, you know, there's, there's things like, uh, you know, do you hit targets in Russia itself? So lots and lots and lots of different sort of red lines and steps to go through. And I don't really think that the West has even really begun to start thinking about, you know, um, getting more deeply involved in the, in the crisis. And the reason for that is, you know, not wanting to upset Putin uh, and not wanting to uh, him, him to decide to do the next thing on the chain. Um, but uh, you can probably do a bit better, I think, than what we've currently been doing. Because a lot of people say to me, this is the conflict that NATO had to have. Uh, this is the war that's united the West. But the West and NATO is not fighting a war. It's watching the Ukrainians fight it and kind of cheering from the sidelines. So unless we want a repeat of this, I do think we need to be a little bit firmer. And Matt, is it still your belief that the most likely end outcome to the invasion is a negotiated settlement? Ah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I suspect that this conflict will go on for a while because neither side has what they need. Um, what Zelensky needs is uh, to roll back a bit more of the Russian forces so that he has an even stronger position at the bargaining table. Uh, what Russia needs is more territory to bargain with, uh, whether or not he wants to, Putin that is, uh, whether or not Putin wants all of Donbass and the sort of corridor to Crimea hard to defend but you know it's it's possible that that's what he wants um the next you know couple of months month couple of months of the the conflict will i think decide you know who uh, has the that upper hand in the negotiating table whether in fact it's Zelensky who's able to say you know press for a full russian withdrawal to the line of contact on february 24th and say okay we won't seek nato membership but we want to seek membership in the eu uh, or whether alternatively it's Russia that gets to, to basically bifurcate, to divide uh, Ukraine, uh, elect a, or appoint a puppet uh, in the eastern part and leave the western part of Ukraine to, to the west to deal with. Um, that's basically what we're dealing with here. The negotiations that are taking place are, you know, important in terms of humanitarian issues, uh, but fundamentally they're about territory and uh, we're I think this is going to have to play out militarily first before we get a clear answer on that. Matthew Sussex, as always, really appreciate your time, thoughts and analysis. Thank you so much for, yeah, for those really, really engaging and uh, and also considered 
reflections on the state of the invasion in Ukraine know that I appreciate it and I'm sure all the listeners do too. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Evan. Thanks a lot.